0: Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items.
1: It's Wednesday, May 12th. John, what do you want to talk about today?
0: Well, sadly, we're close to an all-out war between Israelis and Palestinians. We'll start with that story. And I also want to talk about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown what are you looking at?
1: So, John, you linked in news items today to the New York Times story about the Pennsylvania Teachers Pension Fund and how it came to be exposed to Kurdish oil inventories in northern Iraq. Now the FBI is asking questions. As well, they might. And we should talk about the share buyback bonanza that a lot of companies, tech, you can probably imagine, uh, are getting ready for. Good news for you if you're a shareholder, maybe bad news if you're looking at overall market structure.
0: All right, let's start with a couple of science and tech headlines, and then we'll get to the items.
1: First, China's Sinovac may not have performed as well as Western vaccine makers in clinical trials, but in the real world, it's proving highly effective. That's according to a study among thousands of healthcare workers in Jakarta, Indonesia. One week after their second dose, 98 percent of them were protected from death and 96 percent from hospitalization. Bloomberg calls the growing body of evidence on the vaccine's efficacy, quote, a boon to China's mission of supplying the developing world in a bid to increase its influence and standing, end quote. Chinese companies have delivered more than 75 million vaccine doses to Latin America, for instance. John, what's your quick take on Sinovac?
0: We had Richard Haas on the podcast, and he pointed out that the U.S. was missing a real opportunity by not essentially doing a Marshall Plan for vaccines to not just allies, but emerging market countries. Mm-hmm. The Chinese have sort of filled the, filled the gap and are reaping the diplomatic rewards.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe open the door to, let's say, infrastructure investment.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of countries that are broke, right? Yeah. and they need yeah. they need loans and you know get their economies going and so on and so forth. And you know, by distributing this vaccine to those countries, mm-hmm. um, China is making a very good first impression, and the mm-hmm. U.S. is not.
1: So it's, I mean, are you surprised that there has been, you know, given the the conversations we've been having here on the podcast about China and the WHO and questions over its uh, intransigence and in, in letting researchers and that hasn't that hasn't uh, played out in other countries or emerging market countries' willingness to accept China's vaccine.
0: In a case like this, which can literally destroy your country, you'll take what you can get sure. from anybody you can get it from. It's it's smart.
1: Yeah. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. Next, Apple may be sourcing hardware and assembly work from companies engaged in forced labor in China. Two human rights groups and TechSite the Information have identified seven companies linked to the oppression of Uyghurs and other Chinese minorities. Apple itself has claimed not to have found evidence of forced labor among the companies tied into its supply chain, though it recently terminated contracts with a Chinese supplier over such concerns. John, what do you make of one of the world's biggest companies possibly being tied to virtual slavery?
0: The problem for Apple is that a company that you know, a trillion-dollar company uh, right. can probably figure out what's mm-hmm. going on in their supply chain. So, you know, if it's you and I having a, a T-shirt company and we're sourcing this stuff from Pakistan, it, it's credible that we don't really know. Um, yeah. But Apple is – they know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, they can't not know because each and every piece they have to know. And that's how Tim Cook got to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. You know, he was the master of the supply chain and the management of it.
1: That's a good point.
0: So, can't very well argue that he doesn't, that he's not sure Mm -hmm. that parts are being made in conditions that involve slave labor. So, it's not a story that's going to go away.
1: This is a human rights atrocity. We're going to be keeping an eye on this story in the coming weeks and months. Let's move on to the news items for today. Right, Israelis and Palestinians may be headed toward war again. What began as skirmishes escalated and led to police raids on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Hamas and Islamic Jihad began launching rockets into Israel in retaliation on Monday, and now Israel has begun bombing Gaza and called up reservists. John, I hope I am wrong, but the window for de-escalation seems to be closing. How do you expect this conflict to play out?
0: I went this morning to a website called Mm stratford.com, which is a group of former intelligence analysts from the Central Intelligence Mm -hmm. Agency and the NSA. And what they said was there's no realistic path immediately to de-escalation that we're Mm -hmm. more than likely to see more bloodshed. But it complicates the Middle East a lot because there had been a what they call a thawing of uh, di- yeah. diplomatic relations mm-hmm. uh, between Israel and a number of the Sunni Arab nations, yes. most importantly, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm the pressure on the saudis to side with the palestinians is enormous from their population mm-hmm. same is true in kuwait etc the palestinians who had been sort of discarded by yeah. the major arab states as they sort of softened up relations with the israelis that's no longer tenable so all of the pieces that could lead to resolution are pushing instead toward More conflict.
1: Would you characterize the escalation, the recent escalation, as unusually rapid for Israel and Palestinians?
0: I think that the kindling was just incredibly dry and has been for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, somebody dropped a match. Mm -hmm. The thing about things like this breaking out is Mm -hmm. nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then boom, it blows up. Yeah but it only blows up because it's simmering and has been simmering for a long time underneath. Mm -hmm. I saw Ian Bremmer once give a presentation, and he put up a picture of a Palestinian throwing a rock Mm -hmm. at the Israeli Defense Forces. And, you know, it it was a sort of a perfect capture of the mismatch in terms of military capability. But that's going to happen again and again and again. There are going to be Palestinians throwing rocks at the Israelis for as far as the Mm -hmm. eye can see except now they have allies uh, most importantly Iran yeah. which gives them weaponry that they didn't have before and so it takes it to another level
1: so it sounds like you're pessimistic about just knowing you as I do nothing good will come of this
0: it, no i think it'll i think it'll stop
1: yeah
0: eventually you know they'll run out of rockets essentially mm-hmm. hamas and islamic jihad will run out of weaponry yeah but it doesn't get it anywhere close to resolution, any kind of compromise, one state or two state or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, the question is whether it's over by the end of the week or the end of the month, or if it just escalates into all-out war. Mm -hmm. If it's all-out war, the Palestinians will lose, and the consequences will be dramatic. Mm
1: -hmm. Scary situation.
0: Yeah, it is. It really is a scary situation.
1: But moving on, let's go to the next news item.
0: We've arrived at one of our favorite subjects. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> share buybacks. Early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about share buybacks. Specifically, that companies should not buy back shares with money they received as part of federal aid packages. But now the Financial Times reports that buybacks are making a comeback as companies spend excess profits after a surprisingly strong year. American companies have already announced $484 billion in share buybacks. That's the largest figure we've seen in the last 20 years. Give us your takeaway on the buyback <laughs> situation. I love this subject.
1: Apple's announced $90 billion in share buybacks. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has announced $50 billion in share buybacks. That's what stock investors are looking for. I mean, this is one of the unintended consequences, of which there are many, of a period of ultra-low interest rates, companies awash in cash, accountable to shareholders who want to see some return. In theory, an investor should be indifferent to whether they receive a dividend or share buyback from a, a company that they're invested in. Companies like to buy back their shares because it's not as sticky as a dividend let's put it that way (laughs)
0: sticky yeah i like that
1: well you know it's true like once you start paying a dividend it becomes risky to reduce it yes or to halt it eliminate it in any way that is very scary to investors i mean you see that with oil companies their primary case to investors is that they pay a steady dividend right Right. utility company or something like that right so a buyback is just something that a company can do to sort of you know Make their shareholders happy. Choose the price. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And that pushes the share price higher, the market's happy. It becomes this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. I think in March, the Fed has said it, it would lift restrictions on share buybacks and dividend payments for most US banks after June thirtieth. You know who's jumping on that announcement is JP Morgan Chase. They announced a thirty billion dollar buyback program in December 2020. So yeah, they're doing it.
0: So I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, because I, of course, believe this (laughs) to be true. Is it possible that share buybacks are attached, if you will, to the vesting schedules of key officers of the company? So let's say that the options to CEO Bob Jones vest Uh in July – Might it be the case that the share buyback would take place in May so that the stock price would be up for when those options vest?
1: I have no idea what the SEC regulatory framework would be for something like that. That's very cynical and, dare I say, conspiratorial, but I don't know, John. I don't know. But I mean, look, (laughs) the fact of the matter is that well-capitalized institutional investors or hedge funds, investment management funds, ETFs, et cetera, they don't like to see companies sitting on a lot of cash. Right. It's like, put it to work. And rather than put it to (laughs) R&D, which is like maybe what... You know, We don't expect a publicly listed company to do that anymore because these are cynical times. You know, they buy back their shares. If cash is just sitting on the balance sheet doing nothing, the company's either going to get acquired or they're going to have an activist shareholder come in and say, like, look, you need to be unlocking shareholder value, maximizing shareholder value. Yes. So Those are the watch words, right? Right.
0: <laughs> It is the case that big tech is sitting on a mountain of
1: money. Yes. I mean, just
0: yes. incredible amounts of cash. So,
1: A CEO that is not returning money to its shareholders through strategies like share buybacks and or dividends is not serving the shareholders well. I mean, in the conventional wisdom of capitalist enterprise, they're accountable to the shareholders and that's what they're going to do we got to, you know, realign the market incentives if that's what you, you know, you don't want to see.
0: Right. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to the next piece of financialization of everything.
1: So this is an interesting story. The New York Times reports that the FBI, the feds, are looking into the investment practices of Pennsylvania's largest pension fund a $62 billion pool for public school teachers. The fund has put 51% of its assets into alternative investments. This is to say assets like real estate and infrastructure that are not listed stocks and bonds. This is not unusual for an institutional investor. However, the fund invested in an oil-backed loan to the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq, The Kurds were trying to establish an independent nation, and Baghdad said any oil they sold was stolen. Those loans were supposed to pay 12% interest, but after the Kurds held a referendum on independence, Baghdad recaptured the oil fields controlled by the Kurds, and Pennsylvania's public school teachers were left high and dry. So this is an interesting story in the Times. John, give us a little perspective on what brought us to this point, because it's not like Pennsylvania teachers were out looking to get involved in iraqi Kurdish relations or geopolitics or anything like that.
0: We're going to grossly oversimplify this, okay, yes. but, but it helps to understand it. So back in the 60s when public unions were very strong, they would go to whatever the governor was and they would say, we want a 10% pay increase. Mm-hmm. And the governor, of course, would say, uh, no, I can't do that because then I'll have to raise taxes and then I won't be reelected. So let's work out a deal where we sweeten your pensions and where we sweeten other post-employment benefits, particularly, obviously, retiree health care. And that way, you can take a 4% raise, but you'll have a good pension and you'll have great medical coverage. That essentially played itself out over and over and over and over again until, lo and behold, (laughs) the pension funds were massively underfunded. And so there came the need for the pension funds to get much higher yield on their investments, and therefore what had begun as kind of a province of the very rich and the very well-funded elites became a necessity for pension funds, and that was investing in what are called alternatives. So you can take it from there.
1: All right. So one of the Many unintended consequences of the past decade-plus of low to, in some countries, negative interest rates that we've seen since the great financial crisis has been that conservative institutional investors, like pension funds, they have had to pursue riskier investments in order to get the desired or, let's say, mandated returns for their funds. So this is an example of this. Yeah. This story is also noteworthy because it shows exactly how this happened. You know, when you talk about financialization of everything, this is a case in point. Oil Flow SPV1 DAC, that's the name of this fund. The Pennsylvania Teachers Pension invested in it, according to The Times, the South Carolina Public Employees Pension, which represents pension funds of over 600,000 public employees in that state, invested in this it seems innocent enough. It was registered through an Irish company in Dublin, advertising 12% returns over five years. And it was controlled by the commodity giant Glencore, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange. And the fact that Glencore was you know, responsible for the administration of this fund may have provided a sort of an illusion of reassurance that the investment met some kind of minimum risk standards. But Glencore thought that this investment was too risky to take on itself, so it sold this $500 million oil-backed bond to international investors, sort of seeking to spread the risk over multiple parties. And that's how the Pennsylvania Teachers Pension Fund got involved in it.
0: The unfunded liabilities crisis, if you will, has sort of receded a bit because of the massive federal stimulus and because California is showing a budget surplus of $75 billion. But it isn't going away. It'll be back.
1: These pension funds are in an impossible position. You know, what are they supposed to do? One of the few areas under their discretion is the decision of what to invest in. And in a world of zero to negative interest rates— you know, they're pushed into areas of greater and greater risk that they didn't necessarily ask for, right?
0: Right, right. So. Well, on that note, uh, we'll take a break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items.
1: All right, John, let's talk about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown.
0: Let's do that.
1: The pipeline carries gas from refineries on the Gulf Coast to New Jersey, with plenty of stops along the way. And as no doubt our listeners have heard, hackers got into Colonial System last Friday, locked out the employees, stole their data, and then demanded a ransom. As a result, the gas stopped flowing. On May 7th, we now have gas shortages. The average price of a gallon of gasoline is over $3, and Florida, Virginia, and North Carolina have declared states of emergency. And even if they managed to get the pipeline restarted today, it could take up to two weeks for oil on the Gulf Coast to reach gas stations. So, John, this is just the latest of a series of cyber attacks to hit the U.S. Can you explain why it seems so easy to take out our busiest pipeline and what the Biden administration can or should do about it?
0: In the last five years, we've had cyber attack after cyber attack. And what all this reveals, obviously, is that we are vulnerable at virtually every point. And what's unusual about the colonial case is the Financial Times reported today that the pipeline companies in the U.S. had been told that they were likely to be hacked. And therefore, they had to separate their back office from their operations so that if the back Mm -hmm. office was attacked, the operations could still continue. That, of course, was ignored. And so the ransomware attack occurred. One of the things that is most troubling about what's happened is DarkSide, which is the ransomware executioner in this case, is in fact, is sort of a ransomware for higher operations.
1: Are they based in Russia? There was some conjecture that they're based in Russia.
0: There is conjecture that they're based in Russia. I suspect that they are where they are. They can be anywhere. It's not tied to a specific location, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look at this as, okay, you want to create massive disruption in the U.S. government, you don't have to do that yourself. You can just hire side to do that for you. And they'll mm-hmm. do it for a fee and cut of the action. But you don't really need the money. You just want to disable, if you will, the United States government or various companies in the U.S., whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. That's, to me, the most terrifying part of this is that we now have essentially outsourced actors who can disable significant infrastructure. And the notion that utilities and internet nodes and so on and so forth are better protected than colonial is nonsense. In theory these people dark side could shut down you know electricity for the northeast. Yeah. And so it's really a big deal.
1: Well, there's also the issue of the opportunity that has arisen over the past year plus from people working from home. It has essentially distributed the operational risk profile for a lot of these companies that are operating online. According to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, more than $350 million in losses attributed to ransomware attacks on U.S. companies this year. That's up more than 300 percent over the previous year. So in 2021, up 300 percent over 2020. The dark side of working from home when you work for, let's say, a critical infrastructure company is that you can log in (laughs) remotely, but so can dark side, right? Right, right. (laughs) So do you think that – I don't know. The U.S. has just been caught wrong-footed.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's going on is the U.S. public is out there watching this. They're going, okay, we get attacked again and again and again. Our government is compromised. Our major corporations are compromised. Our major infrastructure is compromised. And we do nothing? Yeah. We don't counterattack? It's a very good issue for the Republicans, I think. Because it gets to the cliche about Democrats being weak and so on and so forth. I think it's going to emerge as a political issue.
1: Well, you know, it, it will emerge as a political issue, but I'm not sure. I question whether Republicans would be hawkish on this because the pushback on Government spending on these sort of infrastructure-adjacent areas like technology, hasn't that come from Republican quarters? Oh, yeah. well, I think that <laughs> Republicans would be the ones pushing back on government-led investments in cybersecurity.
0: But you're making a mistake here, Rebecca, which is you're looking for consistency. Oh, (laughs) forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's, that's not what this is about. Okay. (laughs) Okay. What this is about is you Uh do 20 focus groups across the country and you say, do you think the United States is doing enough to fight this, right? Shouldn't Mm -hmm. we send in a hit team and kill everybody on the dark side and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. And the focus group, nine out of 10 of the people in the focus group will say, yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly what we should do. And then from there, it will go in a focus group PowerPoint presentation to Capitol Hill and Kaboom,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the whoever, you know, in this case, we'll say the Republicans, see the presentation and they go, okay, that's an issue, let's get on it. So, yes, you're right, but... If you can replace Liz Cheney with Elise Stefanik, then you can shift your position on cybersecurity.
1: Mm -hmm. Is there any intel on how DarkSide accessed Colonial that has been made public and or what the ransomware demand was? Did they make a demand for cryptocurrency payment?
0: They made some kind of demand for, I don't know, Bitcoin, you know, X, right? But not surprisingly, the FBI, the company, the U.S. government, everybody wants the the details to be suppressed because Mm -hmm. it would give other people ideas. And so there's been a lid on that, and I suspect that that lid will hold until – Somebody from Bloomberg Businessweek or the New York Times or whatever reports the story, and they get the details. Mm -hmm. So, Rebecca, how has this affected the commodity markets, particularly the futures
1: markets? From a commodity standpoint, there was a spike in futures for gas and heating oil late last week after News of the Hack was made public. That spike has receded as of the present so there is i think market expectation that gas supplies are going to be online pretty soon i mean there are inventories available to relieve bottlenecks i mean there are, we can import energy products from europe or from from canada so i think it's not going to be disastrous for you know us energy supply but it is certainly an interruption and it's a hell of a wake up call let's put it that way
0: yeah i saw on the i guess it was the bbc this morning somebody was interviewed by them and and said this isn't a matter of shortage it's a matter of panic mm-hmm. and so the panic buying is what's resulted in yeah. gas stations in Tennessee not having any gas but you know the IEA report came out this morning and said that demand and supply would be in equilibrium by the fall i think it was so right now there's more supply than demand so mm-hmm. it should straighten itself out
1: all right well, we need the white hat hackers coming in here. We,
0: we need some good guys to get the bad guys.
1: We need some good guys. <laughs> so for deeper insights into the ultimate white hat hacker John Ellis, you got to subscribe to News Items on Substack. That's newsitems.substack.com where John Ellis will bring you deeper intel on all of the topics we discussed today.
0: And have you got something on investableuniverse.com about the energy futures?
1: I have something on investableuniverse.com about a well-known private equity firm that has made a significant investment in penetration cyber defense. Fabulous. So check it out.
0: Okay. So go to <laughs> investableuniverse.com.
1: Yes. But
0: we got to get to the credits.
1: That's it. So, News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon. See you then.